Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean provides worry-free database hosting with their managed databases. If you need to get data in and out of Postgres, MySQL, or Redis, call on the world-class support teams at DigitalOcean and stop wasting time on setup, backup, and maintenance. Get simple, predictable pricing. Get detailed documentation. Get up and running in minutes so you can get on with your business. What are you waiting for? Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, that's do.co slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community that's live with us in real time during the show in the Go Time FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTimeFM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're going to be taking a look at Cloudflare, uh, which is a kind of a real life case study and somewhat success story for Go, I think. Today I'm joined by a couple of regulars and a special guest. John Calhoun's here. Hello, John. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I am doing well. Good. We're also joined by Yana B. Dogan. Hello, Yana. Hello. How's it going? Good. And we are also joined by our special guest, CTO of Cloudflare. It's, uh, it's only John Graham coming. Welcome, John. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're very excited about this. I wondered, I suppose at the, at the top of the show, maybe you could give us a quick intro of yourself and Cloudflare, just, just so people have the background for anyone that hasn't encountered it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, if you don't know what Cloudflare is, um, what I always say to people is you probably used it today without realizing it. We are an infrastructure company that protects and accelerates and makes more reliable about 20 million domains on the internet. And so that's everything from websites you've probably used to the API backend for an app on your phone, um, all those kind of things. And so we protect those things. And you know, if you've visited a website or gone use an app which uses us, we've taken a look to see if you're a hacker and decided you're not, hopefully, and let you through, or we've made it faster or more reliable. So we're a piece of infrastructure in the internet that's kind of hidden, but it's there. And I'm Cloudflare CTO. I've worked for Cloudflare for eight years, starting out as a programmer, writing a lot of Go as it happens. That was the first thing I wrote at Cloudflare was, was Go code. And well, here I am to talk about that. Great. And actually, John, I remember you spoke at the first GopherCon, didn't you, on channels? I think that's right. Or was it the second? It was one of the very, very early ones. I, I gave a talk about uh, channels and why I like them a lot. Um, which goes way back into my history of my PhD because I did a whole load of PhD stuff long before Go, but actually used a similar paradigm. Mm, that's very cool. And so, did Go appeal when you saw that when you saw channels in the language? Then was that kind of something that appealed? Well, yeah. I mean, that was an enormous part of it because 
I had done, uh, we have to go right back into the late 80s, early 90s. I'd done a PhD um, using a language called CSP, Communicating Sequential Processes, and a language related to it called OCAM. And both of these have a concept of essentially of channels and communication with synchronization over channels. And when Go came along, one of the things in the actual Go introduction was it kind of, it says, oh yeah, we're inspired by CSP and the way in which it did things. And so that was like a big light bulb moment for me because I was like, wait, I was doing that a very long time ago. Mm. And I'd done lots of other programming and I was like, finally, I, I really liked that way of thinking and reasoning about how a program works. And so here it was. And here it was in a C-like language. I guess I could call it that because I've done a lot of C and C++ and something with garbage collection. I was like, oh, this is an interesting combination of things. And that's what got me interested in Go right from the get-go. Hmm. That's interesting. Is the design the same in CSP and, and channels in Go then or are there differences? Well, it depends. So if you go right back to the beginning of, of CSP, there weren't actually explicitly channels, but although quite quickly afterwards, the idea of channels came along. The really interesting idea in CSP is you have, well, communicating sequential processes. So you have a bunch of processes that are doing things sequentially. So i.e. go routines, they're just doing their mm -hmm. own thing. And they synchronize to communicate. And so that's really the key thing. And if you think about an unbuffered channel in Go, there's this explicit moment of synchronization. You know, when this gets transmitted, it gets received by this other Go routine. And so that idea of this explicit synchronization for communication makes it quite easy to reason about what your program is doing. It doesn't eliminate, of course, all problems, but it is much simpler to reason about than something that's uh, vastly asynchronous. And so that really appealed to me, and that, that was fundamentally what was in CSP. John, did you see uh, this old paper for, from Bell Labs? Um, maybe it was like from the days of Plan 9. They were like conceptually explaining some of the, the concepts like around, you know, synchronization over channels. I kind of feel like, um, I, I hardly like, I, I think there was a paper like that. And I think like Go is a proper implementation of some of those concepts. If I can actually find the paper, I will send it to you. It's really interesting to see the resemblance. Yeah, well, it's what's interesting about Plan 9. So Plan 9 is, arrives in the sort of the, the 80s, and the fundamentals of CSP are 1977 and 1978. So I think a lot of this stuff has kind of, you know, an origin in some of this thinking about synchronization. And also, you know, people think about what are we going to do if we have really big multiprocessor machines, um, which they didn't have at the time, but how are we going to tame them? And this was a way of taming them with this kind of uh, thinking. So that's interesting then. The theory came just before we practically had the use. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's actually true. A lot of theory, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think if you look at a lot of computer science going backwards, um, you have, especially in the 1970s, a very rich vein of you know papers which are talking about the problems of distributed systems, um, clock synchronization. How are we going to, you know, how are we going to think about this? How are we going to reason about it? Um, because I think people could see on the horizon that um, it, it was possible that there was going to be many, many, you know, multiprocessor machines. And there were some early ones. So some, the CDC 6600, I think, had you know, multiple, I think they called them function units. So there was already kind of, you know, people could see, oh, this is going to happen. But what's funny is in, in, the, in the 1978 paper on communicating sequential processes, there's actually a line in there which is something like you know however developments of processor technologies suggest that a multi-processor machine 
constructed from a number of similar self-contained processes may become more powerful, capacious, reliable, and economical than a machine which is disguised as a monoprocessor. So he could kind of see like, oh, this is going to happen in uh, 28. So, and then he did. That's awesome. So how much Go is there then at Cloudflare? And was it there from the beginning or were there other languages that predated Go's use? Okay, so I didn't join Cloudflare right from the beginning. When I when I joined, there were twenty four people in the company, uh, and Cloudflare was already was already operating. Right, they had a service that was up and running for a few thousand domains um, compared to the twenty million today. But it was operating, and it was quite a mixture of things. So the core processing actually in Cloudflare for the actual request processing, uh, which today is doing something like ten to fifteen million requests per second, uh, that was written in PHP. Um, there was some C because there were modifications to Nginx as C modules uh, to make Nginx faster for certain things. Uh, there was some C++ for doing uh, log file processing. Um, and so there was, there was sort of a little bit of a collection of languages. And then the company was just really getting started with Lua uh, and was going to re... What the plan was at that time was to re-implement the PHP in Lua because Nginx has a good Lua integration through and there's a thing called OpenResty, which allows you to write kind of RESTful programs uh, with the Lua Nginx combination. So that was actually underway when I joined, was that move, move away from PHP. But there was no go. And part of the reason though is that we're talking 2011 and you know we've just had the 10-year anniversary of Go. So you're talking two years into the life of Go and pre-version one. So when I joined, we were on uh, 0.98 pre the first release, and I had seen it and been messing around with it a little bit because of what I thought was you know, nice about it, but very quickly, actually, literally two weeks and a day after I joined Cloudflare, I had a few thousand lines of Go implemented to show how we might use it uh, in a real product, in a real product that still exists today, actually. Oh, right. So that's interesting. So you, you actually tackle the real problem with it to demonstrate and sort of show it, show it off internally. Yeah, because I had a pretty sure idea that it was going to be good for what we had, which was lots of computers with lots of CPUs around the world and stuff that was quite I.O. bound because, you know, we fundamentally we do network stuff. And I think Go has, has a fantastic net library and it was it was fairly easy to get this thing up and running. And it was, you know, it was literally two weeks after I joined that I had a, you know, a prototype running. Did your prototype contain channel use of channels then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it had, so just to talk about this, this is a thing called Railgun, which is one of the things that happens with a service like Cloudflare is we sit between the end user and the web server. And so that could introduce latency because instead of going directly to the web server, the, you know, the end user comes to us. Now, as it happens, because of the state size of our network now, it doesn't actually cause a problem because we're so massive. But at the time, there was a real concern about you know, what could we do to speed up the link between us and the web server. And so this railgun thing, the idea was if we took over the connection between the two and didn't use HTTP, uh, we could do all sorts of interesting things with compression. In particular, we could do well, what's called delta compression, which is to realize that you know, websites don't actually change that fast. And if you request the same page multiple times, it's probably only changed by a few bytes. And so you can get crazy amounts of compression, like 99.5% smaller than the original size. And, you know, so, but we're a shared environment. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have these railgun things 
uh, talking to potentially thousands of web servers on the back end with thousands of connections. So if for every connection we had a Go routine and some coordinating Go routines and then channels all over the place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and your talk covers some practices and things that you can do with channels as well in Go, which I was still to this day refer back to, to when I want to use some of those patterns as well. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of fun because a lot of that was just, in a way, stuff I'd done at university. I was like, well, these are sorts of things you can do. You know, you can make explicit synchronization or you can, you know, coordinate things in a different way. And that was kind of just to show people, you know, what the possibilities of channels were. And they're not just a mechanism for, you know, getting output from your program or something, that they're they're fundamentals. That was kind of the idea of that talk was just to give people some idea. And I think it's called a channel compendium. Is that what it's called? I, I don't quite remember now. It's been a while. Did you did you end up like uh, refactoring any of those bits? Um, I'm seeing a lot of people like going, out, you know, um, over some of the you know the previous patterns, they uh, concurrency patterns they come come up with over time. So, did it happen at Cloudflare as well? I mean, absolutely. In terms of Railgun, because one of the things that was interesting about Railgun was. I was both learning the language and writing what was going to be one of our products at the same time. So there were definitely times when I did things that were, you know, could have been done better and it got refactored extensively. And of course, eventually a team of people took it over and in classic style said, you know, what idiot wrote this? We need to refactor everything. Let's take so, his permissions away. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yes, of course. I mean, and the other th- but the other thing that's really important to realize is we were on 0.98 and there, so there were bugs and there were things that weren't implemented most notoriously so we were we were running on linux because cloudflare uses debian everywhere but we were shipping software this railgun thing it had a component which is on the customer's website right and one of our customers was using freebsd and go supported freebsd but unfortunately it would uh, run out of memory very very quickly and it's one of these situations where you think, how is, why is it not running out of memory on Linux, but it is on FreeBSD? And so that was my chance to learn all about the garbage collector um, and how the garbage collector works. I mean, that's the beauty of open source, right? I was like, well, I can debug this myself. I'll get the, you know, I'll get the garbage collector. I'll go and read all the garbage collector code. And eventually I realized that everything seemed fine. And what was happening was when the memory is being actually released back to the operating system, so you've collected garbage and then you've decided, I literally don't need this bit of the heap anymore. I can give the operating system that bit back, right? Um, it calls this thing in, in the Go runtime called sysunused. And sysunused is meant to call um, something in the operating system called mAdvise to say, I don't need this block of memory. And it does that on Linux. And on FreeBSD, it didn't. And the reason it didn't is I then obviously got the source code and I come down and I find slash slash to do. (laughs) (laughs) And and in brackets, RSC, so Russ Cox's initials, um, this needs to, and it says call them advise with don't need. And so that's why we were running out of memory because every time we gave memory back to the operating system, we said, we don't need it, but the operating system didn't get it. Uh, that's amazing. So that was a fairly easy fix. I went in and fixed it. I and mean, you can find, if you go back in time, you can find the, you can find the request by me to say, by the way, I'm, I'm implementing this on FreeBST because it was missing. So there were things definitely in, in the early days. The other thing that was, I mean, syslog package, syslog package needed some work. It wasn't quite compatible with the RFC. So, I fixed that because syslogging was very important. And the other thing that really 
uh, was difficult right at the beginning was um, sync pool didn't exist. So I, in fact, there are some things that I talk about in the channel compendium, which is how do you recycle memory in Go before we are pre the existence of sync pool. And you can do it really nicely with channels. There's a really nice pattern for it. Because fundamentally, if you think about what was happening inside Railgun, was there was a lot of, we're doing this HTTP request, we're sending it over here, and then you're getting rid of it again. But you then you need another one of these HTTP requests. And if you go back and forth through the, the heap, you just end up with this big mess and a huge amount of garbage. And so I had to figure that out, and that was a big debugging effort. Yeah, did it put you off then encountering these problems? Was that were these little red flags that you were sort of? Was it chipping away at any sort of? Don't know how to ask that question in a good way. Well, I think I was lucky in that Cloudflare was was developing at the time, right? It was very much a small company. I wasn't coming into a big company where everything was already set, and so I got away with a lot by you know having these problems, and we were growing very rapidly and implementing a lot of stuff. And I think in the early days, lots of things are difficult. Um, But to be honest with you, I mean, I've run into problems with every programming language I've ever used ever for the last 25 years or wherever it is. Uh, No, maybe even 30. Um, You know, I think that you just deal with the problems of this, you know, of the thing you're dealing with, the operating system, the libraries. I mean, I did a lot of C++ programming and, don't get me started on horrible things that happen in C++ <laughs> with libraries. So. <laughs> yeah. And of course, now uh, everyone can use Go with a lot more confidence, thanks to efforts like yours, where people did go in and fix things that didn't work for them. I think Cloudflare has been extraordinarily instrumental, figuring out some of the critical things. Um, I remember the leap second bug that you wrote a postmortem about. You know, there was like no monotonic clock and there was a lot of discussions going on, but uh, nobody was particularly interested in, you know, just considering it as an additional API or in a way to the standard library. And after that situation, it actually became very critical. And I think that they released something in the next release or something, right? Yeah, I mean, they did. And I mean, it's great that they did that, although I definitely believe in you know a bad workman blames his tools as a as a maxim so you know we shouldn't have ever had that bug yeah we, we were misused we were assuming that the time api was monotonic when it wasn't and you know that was that was quite scary but yes i mean obviously by us you know having these mistakes you things do progress the biggest thing for us actually though i would say is that up until go 1.5 you know garbage collection pauses were real right and they they especially as the heap got large and that really caused us um, that really caused us issues uh, in particular. So we operate what I believe is the world's largest authoritative DNS service. Um, and that's entirely written in go. Um, it's called, I think called RDNS, which is our internal DNS server, which is if you've gone to a website that, you know, Cloudflare uses or used an API, then you've done a DNS request against one of those. And, you know, What's interesting about it is that we could see the performance of our DNS server go down when the garbage collector paused externally, right? They're external measuring services. And Go 1.5 really fixed that. So that was that was a huge thing. Yeah. And then the other thing is we, we spent a lot of effort on uh, optimization, particularly around crypto stuff, and committed back a lot of assembly optimizations of stuff so that, you know, Go net and crypto is really, really, really far. 
That's awesome. Um, were there any situations where you felt like Go didn't fit, where you maybe tried to solve a problem with it, but it just you were fighting with it too much and you were opted for a different language or something? Well, I mean, we don't use Go for everything. I, I think that it's very good if you have IO-bound stuff and you need lots of parallelism, lots of concurrency. It's great for that kind of stuff. Um, you know, if we're doing low-level bit twiddling type stuff, uh, for example, Cloudflare does a lot of image manipulation, so resizing, resampling, all sorts of stuff. Um, I think there are, there are languages which are better suited for really fiddling around at a low level. I know in the early days there were some times where it felt like we were fighting a bit with the language, like on this garbage collection thing. Now I don't feel like that. Now it's a question of, well, what's the right language to use for this particular, um, this particular problem we're solving? You know, I think Go is great for many, many things. And we use it a lot. Do you ever have any guidelines around picking a language? I'm seeing some very large companies do that. Um, if this is the type of the, you know, the problem pattern you're solving or whatever, just don't use this language. At least like they're documenting some of the anti-patterns. No, we don't have any formal guidelines about it. We have a lot of discussions internally, depending on the project. And then people are fairly free to choose the language they want to use at Cloudflare. We don't actually have a large number of languages people use, but mostly I think from the engineers we have, they, they'll make a choice about you know what they want to use and it's usually within one of, one of a very small number of languages. This episode is brought to you by GoCD. With native integrations for Kubernetes and a Helm chart to quickly get started, GoCD is an easy choice for cloud native teams. With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale build infrastructure on the fly for you. GoCD installs as a Kubernetes native application, which allows for ease of operations, easily upgrade and maintain GoCD using Helm, scale your build infrastructure elastically with a new elastic agent that uses Kubernetes conventions to dynamically scale GoCD agents. GoCD also has first-class integration with Docker registries, easily compose, track, and visualize deployments on Kubernetes. Learn more and get started at gocd.org slash Kubernetes. Again, gocd.org slash Kubernetes. So when you were you know, adopting Go early on, I know one of the things that we hear a lot from people at least is that you know picking up a new language like that is very hard to build a team around because you know you can't say oh I want to go develop two years of experience when the language has only been around two years that's just not going to happen so you know how and somebody actually asked Matt this on Twitter I believe is that right Matt yes uh, Dylan Mears on Twitter asked did, did the devs pick go up on the job or do you only now hire gophers and did that has that changed over the years as well Oh, we definitely don't only hire gophers or rustations or whatever. I think that's an, an enormous mistake mm. to be like, yes, you have to have these specific things. You end up excluding a lot of people who are great. And I think that programmers in general are very passionate about learning new stuff and getting new skills. And so, you know, we're very happy for people to learn, go on the job. And we have, you know, there are lots of resources for learning about go it's an easy language to pick up we have lots of other go programmers equally we have lots of other rust programmers right so i think that it would be a mistake if we said you have to know go yeah it's great if you do super but you know 
fundamentally, technology changes very, very rapidly. And I think of programming, especially in a very rapidly changing environment like the one Cloudflare is in, is a learning job. You're going to have to learn new stuff all the time. Language is a part of it. You know, libraries are part of it. You just, you, you just got to go for it. And I think if somebody came to us and said, I'm only willing to program in Go, I'm, that's my you know, love of my life and that's all I do, I'd, little, I'd be a little bit worried that they would be somebody just be in a rut and never do anything else. Mm, that's interesting because that sort of attitude flies in the face of a lot of the way that the recruitment stuff works i saw somebody tweet the other day they said go is 10 years old so i can finally apply for some of those jobs that need 10 years of go experience <laughs> yeah but that's like you know the people who are putting they need 10 years of go experience are really unimaginative <laughs> it's a sign that you shouldn't go and work for them yeah I think it's also a sign that they must, like the person writing that must not use Go much because like there are some things that people make mistakes with early on and there are some patterns that they eventually, you know, learn to adopt or learn to avoid. But in my mind, one of the things I like about Go is that it doesn't strike me as a language you need 10 years of experience with to be productive. Right. If you do need 10 years of experience to be productive with the language, I mean... <laughs> I think we should probably deprecate that language. <laughs> yeah. Now, to, having said that... I can name too I, many I mean, languages actually in that category. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure that it's actually possible to master C++ uh, completely. Uh, I think everybody writes C++, writes their own variant, mm. uh, which is what people like about it. But no, I, I think that you know, fundamentally programmers like to learn. They want to work on new stuff. And early on... You know, once Go took off and once we were pushing it, I mean, people wanted to work for us to work on Go, right? So they had, they discovered it or they were keen on it and they were coming to us. And that was, you know, what do you want from programmers is motivation, right? You want people to be motivated. And if you have an intrinsic motivation, which is, hey, I'm learning, I'm growing, that's fantastic. So as a company, you know, why would you not hire people who want to do that? So like with that, did you run into issues where, so one of the things people do when they pick up Go is they'll think Go has these awesome channels, I want to use them, and they'll use them in a lot of places where realistically they shouldn't be used or they're overkill. Did you have to sort of push back on that some, or was that just something where, like, I guess, how did you handle that? And that does happen a little bit, although I think that it's somehow that self-corrects because people generate these monstrous things, and I'm sure I did in the early versus of Railgun. I think I had weird Go routines that were reading from one channel and writing on another one, like some sort of foreign key table in a database or something. But I think that's sort of self correct because people, they build things and they're very, very, they're very complicated. And the other thing is, you know, we do do code reviews internally. And so people will point out, this is a weird way of doing this. Yeah. I, I was definitely guilty of that too. When I first saw channels, I just thought, okay, this is brilliant. I mean, you want me to concatenate some strings? <laughs> I'll use channels, no problem. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it'll be, yeah, it'll be great. But yes, and sometimes, of course, then, you know, with a bit more experience, sometimes you think, do you know what, a mutex is just going to be the so simple here. I'm just going to go for that. Yeah, I mean, that is the one instance where, yes, sometimes it's great. I mean, if you're accessing a map, concurrently yeah okay wrap it with a mutex and and use that uh, probably not like have a go routine for accessing a map through channels i mean i guess guess you could do that but ultimately a lot of this stuff comes down to optimization i mean it's not the end of the world if you build something that's not optimal because if it works for your environment then that's fine and then later on you go measure it and figure out what's bad and what I think coming from the cto of cloudflare that's quite an important thing that you just said john because 
too often programmers are a little bit obsessed with that too early of making it perfect and sort of doesn't you know don't worry about whether it's easy to read and maintain uh you know we just care about squeezing out all that performance and obviously if you do that too soon this is the famous mistake that we all still are making which is if you do it too soon you make bad assumptions and things and the, the kind of scale that cloudflare runs at that's really kind of encouraging to hear that i think well, the thing is, I started life as a, a C and assembly language programmer writing network device drivers. And you want every cycle matters, mm. right? You don't LDA zero, you XOR AA because that's only one byte and it's a lot you know, less cycles. But that's appropriate for that environment. Mm. Um, now you have multiprocessor CPUs. Um, you know, it is very, very obvious that you should measure because one of the things about measuring performance is you frequently get surprised by what is a problem. You know, you come along and you're like, wait, why is that happening? Whereas if you sort of use your gut, it's often completely wrong, and especially in large systems. You just don't necessarily know where things are. So I know that programmers like to be really clever and it's really tempting to optimize mm. things. <laughs> you know, I'm going to write my own strucom and make it even faster. And it's like, no, you're yeah. not. And, you know, what we've done, for example, with Go is we went and optimized the crypto stuff because we're doing a lot of cryptography uh, because of all those HTTP requests, um, HTTPS requests. And so it was appropriate to go and do that work. And we have someone who loves doing that work. I used to work for Intel. And so I think you just got to measure it and figure out where your problem is and not right from the beginning be worried about some of this stuff because you just, you, you just optimize the wrong thing. Talking about measurement, uh, where do you measure? Do you measure the production performance? Um, where is the data is coming from? So yes, we can <clears throat> measure production performance. So, um, so we yeah, there are lots of great tools for doing this. I mean, you can get in and you can you can use things like S Trace to figure out what you know what your programs are doing in production. We do do that in production uh, when we want to fully understand something. Obviously, we also have test environments, but I have to say, when you're operating at the scale of Cloudflare, one of the things that's surprising is how heterogeneous the traffic is. Uh, the traffic that goes to 20 million websites is not what you expect in your test environment. It's very hard to replicate. And so the real world will surprise you, and so it is useful. And one of the tools we've used a lot is uh, a thing called a flame graph, which can show us that we can introspect and understand you know, which functions and which parts of the code are spending a lot of time so when we get to have to optimize things we we have tools tools to do that work and in your case code optimizations and things that the rest of us often think of really just as purely technical exercises in your case they must in some situations have quite a significant business impact don't they i mean the cost of of doing things if you just have a few users of course is you almost don't even have to think about it but at your scale, it matters. And so have you have there been any situations where there's been a kind of tussle between the sort of business demands on one hand and the technical on the other? Well, I don't think they have, not from an optimization perspective, because actually what happens is we have a financial model where we can say, you know, how much saving CPU time saves us in terms of money, right? Because we're we're growing very, very rapidly. And if we can not buy new hardware quickly then that saves a significant amount of money. So optimization, you can, you can look at a dollar amount on it. Um, 
we're, now, what's interesting is we're optimizing for different things, right? So one of them is CPU utilization because we'd like to buy less machines. Another one is latency because we'd like you to have the fastest experience when you use our service, right? You go to a website. And so you're, you, know, you may, you, you can, to, to a certain extent, they're the same thing, but not always. It depends what the actual workload is on, on the edge machine because they may, some things are not involved in the critical path latency part but might be using a lot of CPU. So the only real trade-off tends to be, is it better to build this new feature or is it better to do an optimization? And that's probably the trade-off that comes into case because there might be some new product you want to build that you want to get out and there will be some predicted revenue around that product or you want to be first or you want to beat a competitor or something. Uh, versus, well, that same engineering team could save us X million dollars by shaving x percent off of this cpu utilization globally um so those those decisions have to be made and we have a product management team that helps us make those decisions about where, where best to spend engineering resources one interesting thing that involves go is um we have a we have a internal product which um, is a sort of load balancer so if you think about the growth of Cloudflare over the last eight or nine years, we've got multiple generations of hardware. In We have 194 cities where we have hardware. And there are multiple generations with different uh, performance characteristics. And we wanted to make sure that basically every machine is running at the same CPU utilization within a city. And that was not the case if you do naive load balancing because older machines can't handle the load. Um, and so we had, you know, it, a quite typical example would be some machines running at 50% load and some at 75 or 80% at the same time. And so we wrote this coordination layer, which is actually measuring the performance of the machines, understanding what they're capable of, and then real-time directing traffic um, between the machines. And the coordination of that is Go. Um, and that has actually brought us into line now. Where there are quite dramatic graphs in, in Cloudflare where you can you can see like this mixture of CPU percentages in a cola, and then suddenly you turn on this thing called Unimog, and the entire graph flattens out. Every machine is running exactly the same CPU utilization. So, you know, there's many, many things that Go is being used for. That must be so satisfying to see those graphs change. <laughs> if you've used Cloudflare, you, you probably know that uh, when you make a configuration change in Cloudflare, be that you click a button or you upload some code to run in our edge computing environment, it goes global very, very fast. And the way in which that works is we have this internal thing called Quicksilver, which is a distributed key value store. That is written in Go. And it typically will distribute a change completely globally in under half a second. So everywhere from New Zealand to Atlanta to um, Santiago de Chile. Uh, and that's, that's, again, this is a sort of fundamental part of what Cloudflare does is to be able to make those changes really, really fast. And again, that's a, that's a Go program. And that, that's just really cool. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Is, did I read a blog post about this, Quicksilver? Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but we have not, uh, we've not actually given a lot of detail. It's actually being worked on right now as we're going to talk about all the detail about how Quicksilver works. And we're trying to prep the code so we can just open source it so other people can use it. But, you know, essentially we are, we're running essentially a log, a log file 
system uh, globally so you push stuff in and then you can you can at any point find where you are in the log and you can catch up and so if a machine needs to you know catch up with the latest changes it can just communicate and say okay i'm at this checkpoint give me the delta that's why you keep finding time bugs for us uh, maybe yeah i mean <laughs> i mean the team who worked on that could probably tell you about all of the things they found i mean one of the things that's interesting is a lot of kind of we looked at a lot of other distributed key value stores and they tend to be oriented around a lot of machines in a single data center and cloudflare has a lot of machines in a single data center that data center being the planet and the problem with that is that there there's varying packet loss around the world and there's there's very varying latency and so you know coping with that was really what this was designed to do yeah that's really cool now i'd l- love to learn more about that i mean i'm i don't have a use case for it but just just sort of geeky uh in uh, curiosity if you will yes absolutely yeah talking about that um you have tons of open source projects and people keep you know looking at it as reference how did it all started like uh did you just want to just push things um because that's part of your culture or like did you just specifically did it to share because go was very small in the beginning and you were one of the you know major uh users well i'd done open source stuff in the past and so i thought open source was important i think it's very satisfying for engineers to see their work used by others so it wasn't difficult to encourage people to open source stuff and obviously you know if you're modifying something then you should upstream it the upstream doesn't always want your modification but you should at least do that and what we try to do is uh, we so we have some rules around open sourcing stuff um first of all it has to be in production uh, the reason for that is we don't actually want to pay people to write open source products that are the thing they fancy writing right they better be writing something cloudflare wants um, so our rule is We'll open source something as long as it's used in production. I, we really wanted it. Then there's a real question around the maintenance burden. Um, so one of the problems about open sourcing things is, you know, people are going to make pull requests and you're now going to have to dedicate time to it. So we tended to open source stuff we thought others could use easily. So that tends to be small programs, libraries, um, technologies which are standalone. There are bits of Cloudflare that, you know, for example, our DNS server, a lot of people say, can you open source your DNS server? And the problem is it's deeply integrated with our business logic because DNS is fundamentally one of the things we mm. do. And so we would have to abstract out that business logic, uh, create some, you know, some abstract structure for it and then provide that thing. And that just becomes a lot of work that doesn't make any sense to us. Yes. The other thing as well about that is, you know, that rule of only open source things that are in production is, first of all, you know, it's useful, but also, you know, it works as well. So that's, I always think that's a great piece of advice for anybody. Uh, Don't just sort of imagine a package and build it just, well, you can do that. It's a great way to learn and explore, but the best open source packages are ones where people have just solved their problem. But of course, as you, you gave that a good example, John, they're not always appropriate, even if for the, with the greatest will, you would do it. Is it ever a fight? Sometimes um, people can look at uh, that decision about open sourcing something or not and get a bit nervous around kind of company IP and those sorts of issues. Do you ever have that kind of discussion too? Honestly, no. Um, so the, the way in which open sourcing stuff works at Cloudflare is there is an internal mailing list. Um, you just email it and say, hey, I want to open source this thing. 
Um, and this is the license I'm thinking of using. We have a small number of approved licenses. And uh, on that list, there are there's myself, um, a couple of other senior technical people, um, and some of our legal team. And to be honest with you, the responses to that, I mean, if I'm asleep, I obviously don't reply quickly, but mostly it's a yes within a few hours um, to, to open sourcing things. Now, part of the reason we can do that is Matthew, the CEO of Cloudflare, has said many times that he doesn't believe there's any piece of code that Cloudflare has written that gives us long-term advantage. And so that means there's no real danger in open sourcing most stuff. Mm. And in fact, you know, you know, we think we could just dump the whole of our internal Git and somebody and then say, hey, here is everything. And it ultimately it wouldn't hurt us long term. Now we're not going to do it because of the maintenance burden of mm. doing that. Does it run on AWS? <laughs> God no. No, definitely yeah. not. There's no point then. We definitely do not use AWS. <laughs> no, yeah. That's that's really interesting. And it's it does sound like um other companies could learn a little bit, I think, from Cloudflare's example here. Um the, the generosity and the sort of community spirit and all that is I just see it only really rewards companies, but I get when I speak to people, there's a lot of n- kind of nervous nervousness around that. So the same goes for your blog as well, John. Which for anybody who doesn't know, it's blog.cloudflare.com. It's a great resource for all kinds of uh, technical and otherwise stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that was fairly early on when I joined. Uh, Cloudflare had a blog, and and Matthew and others were writing for it. Um, and but I really wanted to write really in-depth technical stuff, uh, partly because I like that, and I'm just like writing about the stuff, and and I think that other nerds like reading in-depth nerd stuff, and so uh, you know myself and others started doing it. And today I'm the I'm the editor in chief of the Cloudflare blog, and what I tell people is, you know, when they write something for that, our goal is to educate the reader. And so I will go back and I will say, you know, you need to explain to the reader what you're talking about, the background, you know, what the subject is here. So you'll find that some of our blog posts are really long. Um, they take a lot of work. We have um, a really fantastic illustrator, Carrie, who does illustrations for the blog. Um, so it's we really tr- make a huge effort on that, partly for hiring people because people read it and go, oh, I'd like to work for Cloudflare. Mm. Partly because our customers then will know the sorts of things we're doing and the sort of technical depth we're involved, you know, we're involved with, and also partly because it's just good, right? It's just fun. Other nerds like to know about this stuff. Absolutely, yeah. Please do keep it up. Uh, we 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 do like it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're, I'm, we're definitely not slowing down. I mean, it's. I, I know there are because I because I review everything that goes on the blog. And I know there are engineers who probably sigh when they see that I've commented because I'm probably going to say this isn't good enough you need to add another you know 500 words explaining what you're talking about right yes If practical AI isn't in your regular podcast rotation, it's time to fix that. Daniel Whiteneck and Chris Benson are on a mission to help you put AI tools and techniques in practice. Here's a sample of what to expect. It's from episode 64, and the guys are discussing how OpenAI trained a pair of neural nets to enable a robot hand to solve a Rubik's Cube. Take a listen. But here they're talking about emergent meta-learning, which sounds like this really weird term to me. (laughs) And it's almost like a term that doesn't mean anything. It's like emergent and it's meta. 
Very new age sounding there. Yeah. What does that even mean? I'm, I'm not sure. So what did you get, if anything, from, from that? Well, I actually drew uh, an analogy between what they were doing with that and kind of what we as humans do in the sense of as they kept cranking up the difficulty by changing the parameters into something more difficult, it reminded me as I read that about, for instance, teaching my daughter to ride a bike and, you know, first just learning how to sit on it and pedal with training wheels on and start steering it. And then as she got comfortable with that and, you know, going over curbs and then taking the training wheels off and, you know, having to learn how to do balance and all that. Practical AI is filled with goodness. Check it out at changelog.com slash practical AI, or just search for practical AI in Apple podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. You'll find it. While you're at it, upgrade to our master feed at changelog.com slash master and let your podcast app download all of our shows. Then you can pick and choose the ones you're interested in and skip the rest. What have you got to lose? All right, back to the show. Changing the subject a little, uh, every year at GoForCon UK, the UK Go Conference, we have now a regular little tradition where we visit Bletchley Park. And John, you have a, a connection, don't you, to Alan Turing, and I'd love for you to tell that story if you, if you could. Yeah, sure. So I had lived abroad for a long time, um, as I am now doing again. But in 2009, I came back to the UK and... I think I saw a tweet from probably Stephen Fry saying, it, you know, it would have been Alan Turing's 90-somethings birthday today if he hadn't killed himself. And I knew the story of Turing because, well, first of all, I'm a computer scientist and I am interested in computer security. And so you, you end up, Turing pops up all over the place. And I knew, of course, that he had killed himself. I knew a lot about um, the history of the, the code-breaking stuff and artificial intelligence stuff. And I was at home, and I just thought, oh, I got really annoyed about it. I honestly thought to myself, you know, the problem here is that we don't talk about uh, Alan Turing in general because there's this kind of shameful thing, which is sort of like, well, he killed himself because he was gay and because we prosecuted him and we treated him very badly. And so in a very typically British way, we sort of forgot to talk about him. And I thought, well, if we could get this out once and for all, we could all sort of talk about it and admit to ourselves it was a bad thing, then we could celebrate what he did. And so I wrote a blog post on my blog saying, this is terrible, Britain should apologize. And somebody in the comments said, you know, you can start a petition on the number 10 website. So I immediately went there and created this petition. I had to wait about a month for it to be approved. And I honestly thought maybe 500 people would sign it. Like, you know, who cares about this? The intersection of gay rights and computer science. And I was like, there's probably 500 people in the world, right? Who care about this? Or in Britain anyway, because it's only open to residents. So sure enough, 500 people did sign quite quickly. And I thought, well, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try and get the press to talk about it. And I just worked on it by myself, just trying to get people to write about it. And eventually the Manchester Guardian wrote about it. Um, and then the Independent uh, and so on. And it kind of snowballed a little bit. And one of the first famous people who signed it was Richard Dawkins. And the cool thing about Richard Dawkins signing it was I could then go back to the press and say, I know I told you about this before, but now Richard Dawkins has signed it. So what you should write is 
Richard Dawkins assigned this. And so I did that. And I eventually I wrote this cool Perl script that, that at the time, the signature names were public. And my father was actually reading them every day and saying, I think this is so-and-so, you know, a famous person. And eventually I automated my father. Um, so what I did was I wrote this ugly Perl script that took the names and then searched on Wikipedia to see if that person had a Wikipedia page. And if it, on that Wikipedia page it said something like, so-and-so is a British, Scottish, English, Welsh, blah, 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 right? So try and see if they were a notable person from the UK. And if they were, then it would email me. And then I could either get hold of them and ask them. So I did that with Ian McEwen, the writer. His name was on there. And I found his email address. And I emailed him and said, are you the person who signed this? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, can I tell the press? Yes. And so I did stuff like that. And it grew and grew and grew. And then just before the, the bank holiday at the end of August, I emailed somebody I had met from the BBC, a journalist called Zoe Kleinman. I'd met her because I'd written this book before and we'd, she'd written a little bit about my book. And I sent her this really cheeky email which said, this is a really important story. You should write about this. So I was telling the BBC, you know, get on with it. And she very kindly wrote back and said, you know what, I'm going to write something. I'm going away for the bank holiday weekend. I'm going to submit it to the editor. I have no idea if it's going to get published. Right? So she did. And I, I, I never saw it. Went to sleep on the Sunday night, bank holiday Monday. I wake up. And there's this almost, I have a graph of the number of signatures. There's almost this vertical line in the number of signatures because it's suddenly thousands and thousands of people are signing. Because, of course, the BBC has this incredible authority. Um, you know, the BBC says this is something people read it, it gets copied around the world. And, then I, and after that, I was on the TV and all over the place talking about it. Um, and that point, you know, 30 something thousand people signed it. I was um, one of those, and then, John. Thank yes. you. Thank you for signing. I'm sorry you, I didn't realize you didn't get you flagged up by your automated father as a notable person. That's n- a non-taken. <laughs> I hope you've deleted I'm that sorry. program. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I pu- actually, I published it. I published everything about this on, on my I'll blog. submit a pull request. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> add, add, add myself. Add yourself. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to work now. It's a yeah. bit late. But, um, <clears throat> so and then after that, I managed to get the flu. And I was sick as oh, a dog. No. And I was lying in bed and I thought, oh, I've got to look at my email. Maybe something's going on at work. And I checked my personal email and there's this email that says from this woman, sorry, I have no idea who she was. Can you call number 10 Downing Street? Here's the phone number. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, you're having me on. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, I Googled the phone number and sure enough, it's the switchboard of number 10 Downing mm. Street. So imagine me, I'm lying in bed, groggy as anything. So I call this number and I'm like, okay, this is who I am. And immediately I get put through to this woman and she's like, the apology is going out tonight. We've already placed it in the Daily Telegraph. That's where it was going to be published. Um, We just need you to read. I need to read it to you and I need you to approve it. So she reads it to me over the phone and I thought it was great. Um, It's the text that everyone can read. And then she goes, Gordon wants a word. Now, Gordon was Gordon Brown. Really? The Prime Minister. (laughs) Yes. So she's like, Gordon wants a word. I was like, okay. Um, so I, he, she said, he'll call you. So <laughs> he'll call right, you. Well, okay, so he'll <laughs> yeah. call you. So I hang up and I'm sort of sitting there. So, and I'm now awake. I'm thinking, my goodness, this is really going to happen. <laughs> and my mobile phone rings and it's Gordon Brown. There's no, no ceremony. Nobody calls up and says, it's the prime minister. Are you ready for it? <laughs> suddenly it's like, it's like, hello, John, it's Gordon, you know. And I was like, and 
you imagine that Gordon Brown's not a very chatty person, if you if you recall. And I had flu. <laughs> and so the two of us were on the phone, not not really wanting to talk to each other very much. And the first thing he said to me, and I'm not gonna forget this, is he said, Hello, John, it's Gordon. Um, I think you know why I'm calling. <laughs> and I thought, bloody hell, I'm glad I know why I'm calling because you really know because you, because you, <laughs> Yeah, it's like if I definitely paid all my taxes, and I definitely, you know, it's like I haven't ever had a parking ticket. You know, but, and then we had this very, very stilted conversation because I felt terrible, and he's quite a serious man. Um, and that was it. There you go. And so that's my connection to Bletchley Park. And then, you know, I, after that, obviously, Turing got more recognition, and we were able to celebrate him. And Bletch, I think it helped give Bletchley a leg up. And yeah, you know, and your your apology, the, what you petitioned for was an apology. And I think, I feel like that was uh, appropriate. They later went on to pardon him. And that sort of, for me, that implies that there was some something was that he did wrong somewhere. So pardon, I didn't feel appropriate, well, but the apology for sure. Me, so, so me neither. So I, I didn't support the, the pardon campaign. There were two things that were important. So one was that, I felt that the apology was good because it apologized to Turing and everybody else who was convicted. Right? So that was, that was important. The second thing is the coalition government, so Cameron's government introduced, what was it called? It was something of freedoms, the Protection of Freedoms Act. And what this did, the Protection of Freedoms Act decriminalized these homosexual acts because the problem is there are people alive today who had been convicted of this thing and had never been expunged because it was illegal at the time. And so the Protection of Freedoms Act fixed that. Um, and so I felt that was all good and I didn't feel like I needed to do more. Um, I'd done more than I ever imagined. Then there was this idea of the pardon and actually I was upset about the pardon because Turing alone got pardoned and there were people who were arguing for the pardon on the grounds that he was a genius and that he somehow deserved mm. it. And I felt that was like, no, I think either you do everybody. Now, ultimately they did do yeah. everybody. Right, so that's fine, but I it just made me uneasy this idea of the first of all the pardon because I don't think he did something wrong, and and you know, and and then to single him out seemed like a seemed like a mistake. I thought that the Gordon Brown's apology did a fantastic job, and I was glad I did. Yeah, that. well, I, I was really glad you did it. Thank you for doing that, and I didn't realize you worked so hard on it. I kind of had the impression it was a petition; it just went viral. So that's even even better. Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, it's amazing. In the last ten years, there was a lot of representation of Alan Turing in the popular culture, right? Like it's like all because of you. Yeah. Thank you. I think so. I mean, it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of hard to take credit for, but if you look at it, it really did take off after. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I give yeah, you credit for that, John. I mean, I'm not I'm not a notable person, as your automated father <laughs> made clear. But uh, you still do. In fact, I mention it in my book, Go Programming Blueprints, still available. <laughs> Actually, John, there's another link we have. I won a copy of your uh, Geek Atlas book by guessing uh, you you had some quiz about um, it was to, it was a reference to the prisoner. I don't know if you remember. You, you said whenever a website asks for your date of birth or something, you give the same fake date of birth or something, right? Okay, so so you're a giant nerd, <laughs> is what we're saying. Yeah. Yes. So on on Twitter, Twitter thinks my date of birth is March the nineteenth, nineteen twenty eight which is the birth date of the prisoner in the classic prisoner TV series and also the actor who played him. Um, so yes, well Thank done. Thank you. I'm glad you <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>
Okay, well, that's all the time we have. John, thank you so much for joining us and telling us all about Cloudflare and, and your experience with Go there. It was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks to Jana and John also. It's been great, and we'll see you next time. All right, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Go Time. If you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up, you'll find us. Hang with us during the live shows, connect with other members of the community, share stories, share code, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions at changelaw.com on every episode. Head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. Also, thanks to Fast, the our bandwidth partner, Rollbar for helping us move fast and fix things, and Linode for hosting the Changelaw platform. Our music is produced by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more awesome podcasts like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's one feed to rule them all, plus some extras that only hit the master feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search for changelawmaster in your podcast client. You'll find us. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.